So, since this is Reformation Sunday, I have a question for you to think about. Are you a Protestant? Sadly, most modern Christians, it seems, are absolutely clueless about a very significant time period in history called the Reformation. Now, I've talked to other various Christians of various stripes, and it's sad that uh, they, they don't know this. In fact, you ask most evangelical Christians today whether they're Catholic or Protestant. Uh, of course, uh, many of them would say Protestant. However, they, they, they wouldn't be able to give a, a good answer as to what it actually means to be Protestant. I hope you would, but... Uh, I just know many don't. So part of the answer really is, is found in the very word Protestant. You'll see part of the word there uh, is protest. So what, what is it that Protestants have been protesting all these years? Well, brave people might say, well, I'm protesting against the Catholic Church. And if that's the best answer you can give, then really really you're unaware of what actually is the battle. What battle are you in? And you're probably unsure of really who is the enemy. So let me explain what I'm talking about here. The term Reformation is the historical name that was actually given to this time period beginning in the 16th century where there was this cry that went out particularly in Western in the Western European church. And the cry was for reform. They didn't want to destroy the church. They wanted to reform the church. Now, the dominant Catholic church was corrupt in the 1500s, well, even before that. But uh, you need to understand that its, its courts were corrupt. Church's authority had confused its role so there was this mix of church and state that should have not happened. But anyway, when, and so when it comes to reform like this, it's, it's, it's a messy business, but it was necessary. And this was especially true of this Reformation because we, I hope you understand that the Reformation encompassed uh, various parallel movements that was going on in different countries, particularly countries like Germany, Switzerland, France, England, and Scotland. There were faithful works for reform in the region, but at the same time, there was also unfaithful works. And so the cry for reform was at times not uniform. In other words, it wasn't, wasn't the same. Some felt the most important thing to reform was, well, just kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of like a, they, some just wanted like a surface change. You know, maybe kick out the incumbent people in the office, you know, like we, we might do in government or a city council. Just kick them out and bring in some new people, and that's all we need to do. That's what some people thought. Other people felt that the officer's agenda, the officer's agenda, should shift from the secular matters to the spiritual matters. Others felt that it was the vitality that needed uh, to be done was just kind of to polish things up a little bit. It's like cleaning the brass or the silver on your, your dishes that might be sitting in a china cabinet. You know, it just needs a little bit of work there, and that's all that needs to be done. But then there were others who, who really felt the heart of reform had to deal with the teaching, the theology was the problem. If 
by the way, I agree. I agree. It, it, the, the issue there is the theology, because theology is always driving the methodology. So you can understand not everybody was agreeing during this time. What, what needed to be reformed? How far do we go with this? Even Luther himself didn't intend to start a whole new denomination. And so to get the big picture of the Reformation, you need to understand there was various movements going on during this time period. So let me just give you the four primary movements. Most historians would say the starting point of the Reformation was when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses or arguments to the church door of Wittenberg, Germany. And so you'll see that happened October 31st. 1517. So next year, we celebrate the 500th anniversary of that event. The second primary movement started in Switzerland by John Calvin. Ulrich Zwingli was also a part of that in Switzerland. And the third large movement didn't center on an individual, but actually on a, a group which Ulrich Zwingli there in Switzerland was... Um, highly influential with and and that group was called and not affectionately called but it was called the Anabaptist which just means the the rebaptizers which they didn't like that term by the way uh, and they didn't like it because they didn't believe their when they were baptized as a baby that that was actually legitimate and then the fourth uh, last major movement in the Reformation was actually a counterattack which was called the counter Reformation, which was mounted by the Catholic Church, and of course that was in response to what God was doing through the success of the Reformers. And so those events are covering a, a period of, of roughly two and a half centuries, so 1500s to the 1700s. That's, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the Reformation. And so the term Protestant then frequently is, is used to refer to anybody who favored the Reformation. Technically, though, that term began in Germany in 1529. Uh, there was a certain uh, diet or a meeting. Diet in Germany is just a meeting of these church people. And what they were doing is they, they declared their intolerance of the movements toward Reformation in Germany. And so prior to that, the proponents of the Reformation were actually called evangelicals. So if you're wondering where does the term Protestant come from, that's where it comes from. Are you a Protestant? And if you are, then what are you actually protesting against? So those are some important things to think about. And as we, we get into the five solos of the Reformation, I, I need to give you a little bit more of a historical background. And there's actually a problem here with tradition that we need to understand so let me give you the historic problem of tradition. The difficulties of applying tradition have been ever-present. Nothing new today. So we as human beings, we, what we tend to do is we, uh, we enjoy the predictability of our traditions. A lot of people get really comfortable with their traditions. And, and given the short duration of our lives and also the manner in which truth is handed down generationally, Traditions have a habit of, of what they end up doing is becoming law, really, for a lot of people. So they turn their traditions into law. 
And like I said, that's nothing new. Jesus had to deal with that even in, in his own day with the religious leaders of Israel, particularly the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Uh, Jesus rebuked the, the Pharisees for elevating their man-made traditions uh, above or at least you know, even with the commands of God. So we need to be aware that's, that is our sinful nature's tendency. Even in, even in healthy churches, this can become a thing where you know, we, don't, we don't want to change things because our liturgy and our traditions, you know, that's, well, that's like changing the Bible for some people. So you need to be aware of that because what's going on here at this time is some radical change. Traditions are changing, and a lot of people don't like that. So the, the Catholic argument was that God had given not only the scriptures to the church for authoritative instruction, but their argument was God had also given the traditions as well as their, their so-called court. And so this position is, by the way, argument from scripture. Um, but anyway, that's, that's how they came to that conclusion. Uh, a second problematic tradition was the Catholic belief that the church court was the body where truth was not only defended, but they, they thought it was their job to preserve the truth. And so their belief in papal dissent, which, by the way, that's just where they, their belief, all the popes, uh, eventually descend from the Apostle Peter, because, you know, supposedly Jesus made Peter the first pope, right? When he was talking to Peter, he says, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't, will not be able to stand against it. So, <clears throat> so there's this belief that Jesus makes Peter the first pope, and then all the popes come from him, right? So anyway, there's this, uh, their belief in this papal descent was the means by which this preservation would be accomplished. And this meant that the scriptures could not be faithfully understood by just the, the average person, which they called the laity. So that's why, you know, during the Dark Ages, you know, people didn't have Bibles. Uh, the Mass was spoken in Latin. People didn't understand what was going on. And so, the, there was the, you know, the faithful could, you know, understand couldn't understand the casual reading and study of the scriptures was discouraged, sometimes forbidden through law, and, that, and that's why you have some of the reformers being actually becoming martyrs, because they dared to translate scripture into their modern language. Hard to believe, isn't it? You kill somebody just for translating the Bible into English, for example. And so that ended up creating a huge problem. And when the church court became corrupt, well, guess what? Their, their pronouncements then are corrupt. And, of course, that ended up leading to this cry for reform. And so at the heart of this cry was a demand for reforming the actual biblical teaching of the church, which the reformers, by the way, believed had, they, they believed had departed from the Bible. And the theologies in question are what have been come have been what we typically call the five solas of the Reformation. And by the way, sola is just Latin means only. 
or alone. So these, these all have to do something with the gospel. And uh, these are kind of the, the center of, of the this whole discussion during the reform of the church. So let, let's just jump into a couple of these today. We won't have time to get all of them today, but let's look at the first two. And the first one is, is the foundation of, for all the rest. All the other solas of the Reformation come from this one. And it's sola scriptura. That's Latin for that the scripture alone is the standard. And this is not a New Testament concept. You can find this many places in the Bible. I want to show you one of the more interesting ones, I think, in that's right there in the first section of your Bible, Deuteronomy 31. Look at this. I think I've put this on the screen here for you. So we can all be together. I did, didn't I? All right, we'll turn to Deuteronomy 31 then, please. Deuteronomy 31, your fifth book in your Bible. I'm going to skip a few verses. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, okay? So let's start Deuteronomy 31, verse 9. 31, verse 9. So so context, by the way, Moses speaking to the children of Israel. Israel is is ready to go into the promised land, finally. (laughs) They're finally there. Now, look, look what it says, Deuteronomy 31, verse 9. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priest, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And we'll just skip that next section. Go, uh, go down to verse 12. Uh, verse 12 says, Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear... And learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And skip over to chapter 32. just want you to understand how important the Word of God was for God's people here. So chapter 32, verse 46. 32, 46. And he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Notice, your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Please understand, this is not a New Testament concept that that Scripture alone is the standard. It's, it's always been this way from the beginning. And so I want to give you a, just a very quick biblical defense of sola scriptura here, okay? Uh, this, boy, this is very surface, okay? 
I, I know you probably already believe this, so I kind of feel like I'm sort of preaching to the choir here. But the, uh, the Latin phrase, sola scriptura, just means scripture alone. Sola means alone, and really is the starting place for all of the solas of the Reformation. And so before we consider what that actually means, let me tell you what it doesn't mean, okay? There's some, some various weird ditches you need to be aware of here that you can fall into. Number one, it doesn't mean that the Bible's the only place where truth can be found. <laughs> right? It's kind of obvious. You, you find truth in lots of places, don't you? You can find it on the Internet, in books and newspapers and so forth, right? Uh, nothing new. Bible's not the only place where truth can be found. And, and, and it, two, it does not mean the Bible is equally clear to all people. Right? That's, that's why God raises up various people within his church. He gives them gifts, help them to know the scriptures and be able to teach it and write it and so forth. And three, it doesn't mean that the instruction of the church is not helpful and authoritative. However, <laughs> it does mean the scriptures are our only ultimate and, and, and infallible authority for faith and practice. So yes, you can gather information and helpful truth from other places, but what is the authority for our faith and practice? It's the Bible. Now we're not talking about what, what some people might call solo scriptura. Uh, there are people who fall into this ditch where you know it's you know just it's just me and my Bible kind of a you know groupy. I don't know if you're familiar with those kind of groups, but anyway, uh, they often get nicknamed Sola Scriptura, Solo, sorry, Solo, and uh, and so they just reject all others in the process. You know, just it's just them and their their teacher, or them and themselves and the Bible. So what we're what we are saying, the Scriptures are our final authority. They're infallible. All other authorities are subordinate to the Scriptures. Everything else is fallible. So that, that would go for, for church governments, church courts, uh, writings from people, okay, so forth. But what is, what is infallible is the Scripture. In fact, all of Scripture, according to 2 Timothy 3. Did I put that one up there? I can't remember. There we go. So all of Scripture, notice this, is given by inspiration of God. Some of your Bibles might say, breathe out for the word inspiration. God's saying these words. And notice that all Scripture is profitable for various things. God mentions four things. It's profitable for, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Why? What purpose? Verse 17, that the man of God, that's you, by the way, any person of God here, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So you want to be equipped for whatever God wants you to do? God's going to use his word to do that purpose, to accomplish that purpose. You will be complete. 
through his word. So notice it's all scripture. <clears throat> the uncomfortable parts, the parts you like, <laughs> the parts you, you think, well, man, what about those genealogies? You know, the so-and-so beget so-and-so and he died, and so-and-so beget so-and-so and he died. And, you know, even those parts you don't like, even those that seem to be irrelevant, yes, even those, all scripture is given by God. Even that is profitable. All right. So what about all those, those laws in the Old Testament? Is that profitable for me? Yes. <laughs> doesn't mean you have to do all those things, like sacrifices and so forth, but they're profitable. We'll, we'll, we'll see maybe more so why that is in a moment. So that's got to be one of the best defenses of sola scriptura that, that, that we can have, but it, it's found throughout the Bible. Let me give you some other ones, like, for example, Psalm 119 verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I hope you pray that often, by the way. Wonderful prayer. Psalm 138 verse 2. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. It's not just God exalting his name. Notice there's an and. He says, I'm exalting my word. Because the word exalts God. We don't worship the word. We worship God. It's interesting when Martin Luther, in 1521, when he was being interrogated at what they called the Diet of Berms, he, de he declared these words, and he was talking about his conscience was held captive to the Word of God. He had been asked to recant his writings. And he didn't know what to say at first, because he knew if he said, uh, I'm not going to recant, he, he knew he was probably going to get burnt at the stake. So he said, can I, have a, can I have a night to think about this and pray about this? And they did. But anyway, he comes back the next day, and here's what he says. I'm quoting. Unless I am overcome with testimonies from Scripture, or with evident reasons, for I believe neither the Pope nor the councils, since they have often erred and contradicted one another, I am overcome by the Scripture text, and my conscience is bound by the Word of God. Now, he said some other things, but that's the basic idea. Understand, what was binding his conscience, even though he... He was thinking, I'm a dead man. As soon as I say this, they're going to kill me. That's what he was thinking. What's binding his conscience? That life is not dear. It's the word of God. And so he refused to recant. And during this, around this time period of the Reformation, they, they wrote up the Belgic Confession. Very helpful statement. Here's what it says. Very well worded. It says, uh, quote, We believe that the Holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God, and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. Neither may we consider any writings of men, however holy these men may have been, of equal value with those divine Scriptures, nor ought we to consider custom, or the great multitude, or antiquity, 
or a succession of times and persons or councils, decrees, or statutes as of equal value with the truth of God. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts whatsoever does not agree with this infallible rule. End quote. So, I hope you can see during this time period where there was, there was great controversy where the traditions of the church, of men, had at least become equal and trumped the Word of God. There was this belief coming back into uh, to, to being, into belief that, no, it's, it's, it's the Scriptures. It's the standard. It's the only infallible standard, in fact. Well, there was very various historical objections that were popping up during this time period, so let me just share some of these. Number one, the Protestant church is a dismal failure due to all of the fact factious denominations. You ever heard that? Oh, I've talked to various unbelieving workmates over the years, and they love to throw this one in my face. Like, you know, you, you guys are all divided. You know, there's all kinds of churches. It's confusing. I, I don't know what to believe. <laughs> right? You heard that one? Like, so many denominations, and you all think you're right. Well, while this charge is painfully true, about the Protestants, anyway. It's still equally true of the Catholic Church, by the way, which has not avoided to, to any measure the divisions and factions within its own walls. So don't think for one moment that they have it all together and that they're perfectly united because the Catholics aren't. They're not. In fact, they're, there's, boy. Anyway, you, you can study that more if you want, but so where the Catholic Church has maintained a common name, yet divided under one roof, what the Protestants have done is they've just they've broken into multiple names under multiple roofs. So anyway, you, I'm sure you're familiar with that. But it, it's Christ who's, who will sanctify the bride, the Bible says. Christ is preparing his bride for the wedding. And we believe that our victorious Lord will accomplish this sanctification. One day, as we've, we've read about in, and, and studied in the book of Revelation, what's going to happen? The church will be unified under her Lord, the head of the church. Ultimately unified. There will only be one church. Uh, another historical objection, number two, is this, that oral instruction as well as written instruction are equally authoritative in the Scriptures. And this comes from 2 Timothy. And by the way, it's motivated by this belief, uh, by the pattern of oral and written instruction prior to the canonization of the Scriptures was normative, and that the church is responsible then for providing the equally infallible and authoritative oral instruction. So that the, the church is, is somehow the only ones able to interpret the scriptures. By the way, that's one of the things that makes me a Baptist. Is one of the Baptist distinctives is the priesthood of the believer. Priesthood of the believer. Any Christian is, is a priest before God. 
you're able to read the scriptures and study it and interpret it properly. Sure, you can get it wrong, just like I can get it wrong. But you have the same Holy Spirit that I do. So, you are a priest before God. But a third issue that's, that's come up is that, hey, you use circular reasoning by claiming the scriptures are the word of God because it claims to be. By the way, guilty as charged. Yes, that is circular reasoning, isn't it? Although that claim doesn't necessarily come from the Catholic-Protestant debate, it is raised frequently when people are discussing sola scriptura. And so this argument is misguided, though, because everyone uses circular reasoning when they're defending their ultimate source of authority, aren't they? Everybody does that. When defending ultimate authority, you're always forced to borrow from that in order to defend its authority. So the primary way we defend the authority of the Scripture is prophetic authority. Apostolic authority is another one I hope you use, as well as the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what did he do when he was on earth? You constantly hear Jesus saying, It is written. It is written. He's talking to the Pharisees and others. He said, don't you know the Old Testament says this? They should have known. But Jesus backed the authority of the Scriptures himself. So sola scriptura is the first of the solas of the Reformation. The second one I, we need to address is this. Solo Christo, or another way they said it is solus Christus. In other words, by Christ's work alone, we are saved. I hope you can see how this is a very controversial thing during the Reformation. See, the Reformation called the church back to faith in Christ. Christ was the only mediator between God and man. Now, we'll look at various scriptures that prove that. But the Roman church taught, taught, well, all sorts of things, some of them coming even from the Apocrypha. So they, they would teach things that they're, like there's a purgatory, this so-called this halfway house where souls were, are detained after their death. And that, uh, you know, by dropping coins in an offering, you can somehow, and through your prayers, your intercessions, you can, you can help people get out of purgatory quicker. They also believe saints are to be revered and prayed to. You know, you walk, those of you who have been through Europe, you know, there's, there's various relics and saints' bodies, bones, and stuff everywhere, right? And, and relics are to be honored. You know, people think, you know, i got to go see all these relics. You know, they go all through these monasteries and so forth around Europe in particular. It's sad to see people doing that, isn't it? And so on the other hand, the Reformers taught salvation was by Christ's work alone. You don't, gotta go, you, don't, you don't need to pray to saints. You don't need to go see relics and so forth. Those things aren't going to do anything for you. In fact, I, I love what John Calvin said. Uh, John Calvin wrote in the Institutes of Christian Religion, I, I quote, here's what he said, Christ stepped in took the punishment upon himself, and bore the judgment due to sinners. 
With his own blood, he expiated the sins which made them enemies of God and thereby satisfied him. We look to Christ alone for divine favor and fatherly love. There you go. There's, there's solus Christus. We look to Christ alone. We, we don't look to relics. We don't look to saints. We don't look to, to popes and so forth. I also like the way the Heidelberg Catechism words this. The Heidelberg, by the way, is, in, is a city in Germany. During this time period, they came up with this teaching to help people understand the truth of Scripture. And question number 30 asks this, this very question. It says, Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior who seek their salvation and happiness in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else? Well, the answer is they do not. For though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds, they deny Jesus, the only deliverer and savior. For one of these two must be true that the other, or that, that either Jesus is not a complete savior, or that they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find all things in Him necessary to their salvation. Do you understand what they're, they're trying to say? I, I hope. It, it's either all Jesus or it's none of Jesus. It, 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 you can't try to hold on to Jesus and then tack on all this other stuff thinking that's what saves you. And that, that was the problem. Okay? The Catholic Church has always believed in Jesus. And by the way, they've also always believed in faith. But when you start tacking, adding your good works to Jesus, you lose the gospel. That was the problem here. And so that's why they're teaching solus Christus. By Christ's work alone we're saved. It's not our work added onto Jesus' work. Oh, man, this is found all through Scripture. Let me just, let's just talk about a few examples, okay? For example, in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Okay. Uh, Colossians, turn there. Turn over to Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1. Okay, Colossians chapter 1. So context. Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is showing how Christ is preeminent. In other words, he's highly honored. He is deserving of this honor and praise and worship. Why? Well, let's, let's read. Well, what did Christ do? Who is he? So Colossians 1, look at verse 13 all about Christ here. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that's Christ, is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's what Colossians says. So so who's doing all this work here? It's Christ. He's the one deserving of this praise and honor and glory. So, hopefully we believe that the Scripture is our only ultimate and infallible authority for faith and practice. Well, then it it, it really follows from that that the the other various solas of the Reformation are coming from that truth. That's, That's the foundation. And so this becomes then the essence of the issue. Extra biblical writings, church traditions were at odds with the accepted scriptures. And so the reformers were attempting to return the theology of the church to its very foundation. <laughs> and that created a problem. So let me get um, look at some other scriptures here that, that really give a biblical defense of while of why Christ's work is what saves us. It's Christ's work alone. That, that saves it. And by the way, that also, you know, of course, God the Father and the Holy Spirit are involved in our salvation, but it's, it's Christ. He's the one who came and lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, was buried and rose again, and is our great high priest. So let's look at some of this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9 is a wonderful place to start here. Hebrews 9. Of course, Hebrews is showing us that Jesus is the best in in every way. Hebrews 9. Let's start reading Hebrews 9, verse 23. Verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
beautiful passage. And so, at the time of the Reformation, you need to understand that the Catholic system had formally established that there were actually, my understanding is, seven sacraments. Sorry, So they believed seven sacraments. For example, baptism, the Eucharist, penance, confirmation, marriage, ordination, and what they called extreme unction. And so, again, this is just another of many things that makes me a Baptist. One of the Baptist distinctives that they've always believed in is there's only two ordinances of the local church. And so what the Reformers did is they not only brought the number of sacraments into dispute, but they actually brought the theology of those, those sacraments into dispute. See, the problem was... The Mass was the center of the Catholic Church's liturgy during their service. And, of course, it was originally spoken only in Latin, which hardly anybody knew Latin. Although most of the laity couldn't speak Latin, this was not the most important of the things that needed to be reformed. And so the two primary points under dispute were the elements of the Mass, or what you might call communion, as well as the crucifixion of Christ. What what you believed on this, and and you believe, is very important. So Reformers argued against the Catholic position, which was called transubstantiation. So during the Mass, as uh, uh, the priest said the, it's almost like magical words, the the bread and the juice somehow actually became the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Well, that's what they believed, anyway. So reformers said, well, no, (laughs) that's not true. And so another aspect of the Mass that came under reform was the belief that, well, the, the priests were actually breaking the body of Christ each time they administered the Lord's table. They they viewed that as Christ was being sacrificed every time the Mass was said. And this, of course, was an extreme heresy to the Reformers. It had huge theological implications. And as far as they're concerned, and, and I'm concerned, is a clear contradiction of Scripture. And the Reformers taught that Christ, as we just read here in Hebrews, Christ, how many times did he die for sin? Once. Christ died once for all, Hebrews says. And then after his death, what did he do? He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And he is still there, by the way, and will be there until he returns again. And Scripture is very clear that we have a great high priest. We have one mediator between God and man. And you're wondering where that comes from. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 5, which says that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And so one of the heresies of Catholic doctrine, sadly, is what we call Mariology, which is the deification of Mary, who is the earthly mother of Jesus, 
And so in 431, the year 431, they had a council at Ephesus. And the term Mother of God was adopted as an official title for Mary. And so even today, by the way, there's pressure being put upon the Pope and the Cardinals to formally recognize Mary as the co-mediator with Christ. And so many Catholics believe that, uh, that they should pray to Mary because Mary is the mother of Jesus. And so then by praying to Mary, she's going to tell Jesus what to do. Whoa. Blasphemy, isn't it? I know. But uh, that, that's what many believe. And so we can see why the Reformers objected strongly to this particular teaching. No, we don't pray to Mary. And so such doctrines are, of course, are clear contradictions to the Scripture. By the way, uh, the Bible itself says that Jesus is the only mediator between man and God. Even Peter, in Acts chapter 4, declared that there is no other name under heaven by which a man can be saved. The only name Peter says there in Acts 4 is Jesus. There's no other name by which we can be saved. The Scriptures also declare it's Jesus who intercedes on the behalf of all Christians. It's His sacrifice alone that is sufficient to atone for the sins of the church. So again, we we look at Hebrews here, which is extremely helpful. Look at Hebrews 9. I want you to see that that Christ is our mediator. We don't need any other mediators. We don't need to go and confess our sins to a priest or any other human being. We only need the man, Christ Jesus. So Hebrews 9, verse 11, says this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, in other words, that's, that's awesome truth. That is a glorious truth. Uh, and so what does that mean? What does that mean for you and me? Verse 15. Therefore, He, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We could keep reading, but we'll stop there. I hope you get the point. Do you see, my friends, that Christ is the only mediator you need? In fact, it's 
if you look to anything else, my friends, if you try to add something else, your good works, whatever that looks like, you try adding that onto Jesus, my friends, you just nullified Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. It's like spitting into Jesus' face and saying, you're not good enough. The point is, he is. He is good enough. You don't need any other sacrifice for your sin. And so, I'd like to say the Reformation is over. But if you understand this truth, you know, my friends, it's not over because we're... We still got the same old error going on today, don't we? Where people think that Christ is not good enough. I need to do something else. You know, it's, it's my prayers. It's all my Bible reading. It's my charity. It's something else, right? Whatever that looks like. And if I do that... Then God's going to look at me, and He's going to see all my righteousness, how it, how it somehow outweighs my badness, <laughs> my evil, my sin. Right? So that's going to outweigh the bad. So God's going to see all the good, and that's how I get into heaven. Really? The Bible says you break the law in one point, you're guilty of the entire thing. The entire law comes down and crushes you. The only thing that can defeat that is Jesus. So my friends, and, and by the way, this is, this is a continual issue even for me as a believer. Do you feel that you're getting crushed by the law? Do you, even as a believer, my friend, Beware of continually wanting to jump on the performance treadmill. You might be there even now. I've struggled with this pretty much my whole life, because most of my life I've been a Christian. Where I continually want to jump on the performance treadmill and thinking, you know, it's, i got to read the Bible today, because then God's going to bless me, and He's going to smile at me, and I can be friends with God. Whether or not I read the Bible doesn't affect my standing with God. It affects my fellowship, yes. Please, my friends, beware of jumping on the performance treadmill. See, you're, you're, you're not sanctified by your works. Just as you're not saved by your works. It's Christ in you who is the hope of glory. Well... I hope uh, these, these things that we, we've seen going on for many centuries now still haven't gone away. And you've probably heard it said, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. This is why we need to study church history. Because we don't want to repeat these things. They keep coming back and rearing their ugly heads, don't they? So may God give us the grace to know the truth, and that the truth would set us free. Let's pray.